You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. And today I'm so pumped to have an actual friend of mine who I just um, respect and love and admire so much, Hallie Teco. So Hallie um, went to Harvard Business School. She's in the middle of her MPH or almost finished with her uh, master's in public health from Johns Hopkins. And she founded an incredibly cool company called Rock Health and then pivoted and founded another company called Natalist. So we're going to hear all about her career and her journey through school and family and all of that today. So Hallie, thank you for coming. Thanks for inviting me, Claire. This is uh, the first time we've had like a formal conversation. <laughs> I know. I know. We met a few years ago through some um, sweet friends at, at MUSC when Jeff and Hallie had just moved to Charleston. They live in Charleston where we live. Um, and But we've never like had a formal sit down. Tell me yeah, about your life. I was, I was calculating when we met and Evie was a newborn and yeah. the day we met, Evie was a newborn because she was maybe, maybe two months old. I mean, you had like yeah. just given birth to her and you were, we were at your next door neighbors. And I remember yep. she was sleeping and you had the monitor and someone must've been there. Reagan must've been there. Like Reagan. No. Who was your Brogan? Yeah. Brogan must've been. No, there. we would have totally had the monitor next door. That is a thing that we would do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So there was no one at your house. <laughs> no, I just assumed that you had a, you had a babysitter. No. And you were just and what's funny, on the monitor. No, it was just the monitor. What's funny is I had a friend one time who we were talking about that, like having the monitor and being next door. And they're like, you know, gosh, is that okay? Is that okay? I was like, my friend was like, listen, I, my husband could be in our home and I would get to the baby faster, like a mile away, hearing them on the monitor, then my husband would get to them like in our own home. I was like, that's a great, point. that's a great point. Yeah. So it's more about awareness than proximity. <laughs> right. Exactly. So yeah, no, we would totally go over to our neighbor's house and have her on the monitor. But, um, so yeah, we, and we just like hit it off with you guys immediately and have so much in common. And it's been, it's been really fun to, to get to know you because you've done so many cool things, but um, I was reading through your bio and had to ask, I was like, I don't remember where you went to undergrad. So you went to Case Western undergrad yep. and, but tell me what you were telling me about your family. Yeah. Well, so I, um, yeah, so I went to Case Western, which is a little known school in Cleveland. It was under an hour away from where I grew up. Um, 9-11 happened my senior year of high school. And mm -hmm. my, like, my dream was to go to NYU. I really wanted to go to NYU. Um, but a lot of things happened it, after 9-11, um, like, A, my parents just couldn't afford it, um, and I got, like, nearly a full ride at Case, but also there was just, like, a lot of fear of being in New York City after that, so yeah. I ended up choosing, had 9-11 not happened, I guarantee I would have, you know, figured out, like, going to NYU, because that was, like, my dream for the longest time. My AOL AIM name was Hallie NYNY, um, okay. I do which is hysterical because I hate New York now after living there. I've lived there twice and I hate it now and I could never live there again. 
Um, I admire people who can live in New York, but um, I'm sure you've heard about the man who fell 15 feet, sunk 15 feet. The rats. The pit of rats. I cannot. Yeah. So if you miss the news, a man was standing at the bus stop. A sinkhole opened up. He fell 15 feet Uh into the earth, into a pile of rats. He he couldn't scream because he didn't want the rats to go in his mouth. Stop. Stop. (laughs) Stop. And I, I, as soon as I saw that, like, it is literally the reason I, one of like the catalysts to getting out of New York, we lived in a very old apartment in New York and like in in the East Village. So a very old neighborhood. And like one day a building just like blew up and (laughs) turned out the, the landlord was like siphoning gas from the, like the building (laughs) next door and things like this would just like constantly happen. Like the infrastructure is just like falling apart and they're just, it's so dense. So anyways, I'm a suburban girl, apparently. Now you live in Mount Pleasant and we don't have these problems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So although, I mean, that bridge that the bridge between Daniel Island and Mount Pleasant for anyone that is in, in Charleston knows that it is pretty scary. That's Um, true. That's your biggest problem in life is the bridge. Yes. I went to college nearby and I think that's really common with first generation college students. I'm a first gen college student. Um, my dad graduated high school. Um, he uh-huh. took some college courses, but didn't graduate college. Um, and then my grandpa um, and grandma only made it to um, like eighth grade. So it's wild. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm something I'm very proud of. My, my parents are really proud you know, of me finishing college. And then, you know, all my, all my siblings have finished college and all of us had advanced degrees. So, um, yeah. So did you go straight through to business school or did you have a break in between? No, I worked at Intel, um, right out of college. So I, so I went to college at, um, at case I studied abroad in Rome. That was like a very pivotal moment in my life because it was the first time I had lived outside of Ohio. Um, and so that, you know, when I came back from my senior year, my whole goal was like, just get as far away from Ohio as possible. So applied to jobs across the U S and ended up, um, literally taking the job at Intel because it was the farthest from Ohio. So anyway, so yeah, so I took a job out of school, went to San Francisco, worked there, and then, um, went back to business school or went back to school in 2009. So I graduated in 06 and I went back to business school in 09. So I had some work experience before business school, which is, which is typical. The yeah. average is like two to three years of, of work experience before business school or and like so your you, husband, you, 15 years, 20, who knows? You're right. Who's <laughs> to say you're never too old for Ed O'Brien. Um, right. Y'all both have like similar too many degree problems. Um, so when you, you went to Boston for, for business school. Right. And then yeah. you went back to San Francisco and when did you, when did rock health come into play? Was yeah. that an idea that you thought of while you were in business school? It was. Yeah. I started in my, my, my dorm. Um, so when I, so my, my summer between my first and second year at business school, I got an email from a guy I had been writing, um, about social justice issues for like Forbes women. I wrote some pieces on women there for Huffington Post, like back when like the blogger thing was just starting out. So I had been writing um, then. I don't dig up any pieces. They're probably really embarrassing. Um, But I somehow got on the radar of a really 
uh, awesome guy named James Higa who worked at Apple, who was um, very senior. He worked for Steve Jobs for many, many years. He was a very early employee. And I somehow got on his radar and he had, um, you know, we, we had connected and he helped me get a, get a job at Apple. And so he knew my interests were kind of at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And mm-hmm. so he basically helped like carve out this position for me at the app store. So at the time, this was 2010, the app store was a year old. Um, so it, it was just in its infancy and healthcare wasn't even really a category that had picked up at that point. No one, no one on their team was focused on, on healthcare. And we're always the last to the party of anything technologically advanced. Totally, exactly. Right. Uh, We do it to ourselves, uh, (laughs) such Luddites in healthcare. Um, So they basically, you know, had me come in and be the first person dedicated to understanding the healthcare and medical segments on, on the app store. Now, Apple has worked with you know, healthcare, especially healthcare education. So a lot of the med schools have had partnerships with Apple for a long time. So that team on the education team had existed, but in terms of apps, um, it was really like, uh, there, there were very few apps and they were really a lot of junk. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it was a lot of, a lot of large healthcare systems that really were doing like this check the box strategy of like, oh yeah, we need to go mobile. <laughs> and so they'd like, right. you know, hire a team in Eastern Europe and like put together an app that like really wasn't that useful um, and tossed it in the app store. And so I said, and they're like, we're mobile. Yay. Exactly. Like they can put it in there and the year report. Um, and I sat next to this woman who um, I became friends with and I'm still friends with Linda Kim. And she oversaw the gaming category. And I was just like, so jealous of like how fun all the apps were that she was working with. Like these developers were using very different features. They were just going above and beyond to utilize all the features in the phone to make something that people that are delightful for users. And Mm -hmm. the difference between the quality of apps in gaming versus healthcare was enormous. And so that was when I was like inspired to go find app developers that were interested in using their skills for good. And so I went back to school um, in the fall of 2010 and kind of took this idea and turned it into uh, like a independent study. And so worked with one of my classmates. So actually I first worked with one of my friends, Julia Cheek, who now started Emily Well. Um, so she was like a little, she was helpful in the beginning and then <clears throat> she ended up going a different route. And I worked with, uh, Nate Gross, who was a classmate of mine who was an MD MBA. And so I was like, mm-hmm. all right, you're the healthcare guy. I can be the tech person. And so we worked on it as a class project. I joke that it was the only time I got, I'm, I'm not joking. I'm serious. It's the only time I got a one <laughs> way you get, it's your, it's a force ranking one, two, three, four. And one is like the highest, like only the top. I don't remember 10% get ones. And I literally had no other ones throughout my entire business school. Um, and so we, um, so, so I got this, you know, great marks on, on this project that we spent, you know, all fall semester working on. We worked with a uh, professor, uh, Bob Higgins, who's been a long, long time healthcare investor. And I decided that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do healthcare investing. The project was uh-huh. basically bringing all these people around the table um, and giving funding to the companies, but not just funding to tech-driven companies, but also support from the healthcare systems. And so um, 
I, I tried to find a job in VC because I knew it would be, you know, I thought it would be easier to join a, a VC, so venture capital firm, than start my own, but um, no one would hire me. So it's very hard to get a job in VC and it's even harder if you're a woman. Um, yeah. And so uh, I just like, was like, I'm just going to do this. Like, this is what I want to do. I, I have this vision here. I got a good grade on this paper. <laughs> Let me do right. it. Unfortunately, we were able to, you know, get enough partners up and running. Um, I basically spent my entire last semester at Harvard in San Francisco. They had this really cool program where like they would subsidize any of your like research. So I did it as research. Um, so uh -huh. my research costs were covered. So I was able to go back to San Francisco. My fiance, now husband, had stayed there. He didn't move to Boston with me. So uh -huh. going back was important to me for that reason as well. Um, and so we got Mayo Clinic on board. They were one of our first partners. Nike was one of our first partners. Um, Kaiser. How Premier. did they know? How did they trust a partner with you at that point when you're like a little baby? I know I was, I was 25. Um, right. Honestly, like the HBS network is magical. They were all, all people that I met that like helped. Um, they were all HBS alum and that's Harvard business. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was hundred percent a network thing. It was like, yeah. this is exactly why I needed to go to Harvard Business School. Like it played out exactly as like, this is why you get, you know, into tons of debt because the network is phenomenal. And there's just like a built-in credibility. I had like no experience doing what I was doing. I shouldn't say no experience. I had been an angel investor for a few years at that point. Um, but that's it. I mean, I had no formal investing experience. And so, but we got all these great partners, um, up and running. Harvard Medical School was one of our early partners. And we raised just enough money to like get this really crappy office in, in San Francisco's Chinatown. And we got the keys like the week of graduation. And like, I literally slid right in from like school to working at Rock Health full time, paid myself like next to nothing. And what's well, so, Yeah. So how are you investing like, what do, you, what do you mean you were an angel investor when you were like, I didn't have a job and I was like in business yeah. school. I mean, what are you investing with? Well, like, I'm very you... small amounts, like 2,500 bucks. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so you would just save up and then. Small amounts. Yeah. 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 Um, in friends companies. And I was investing like at that point had probably invested in like four or five companies versus yeah. now investing over like 120. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and now I write much bigger checks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how it got started. And then, you know, we were, we were literally the first ones focused on what we call digital health um, mm -hmm. from, a, from a full fund perspective. And some of our early companies like Omada Health, um, Evidation Health have like gone on to be extremely successful. And we've created this really great just network of people who are, um, you know, tech minded, <laughs> design minded that are really right. trying to move the needle in healthcare. Um, and it was great. It was a great uh, experience. Ran that for five, six years. Um, and it, it evolved throughout that time as, you know, the company got more successful and the companies that we funded got more successful. Um, but eventually we needed to sold it, that. right? Yeah. What? You, I mean, you sold your portion of the company or your, well, I, I, no, I mean, no, um, but I, yeah, I mean, we, it was, it was structured. The part that employed me was structured as a nonprofit. So there was nothing to sell. Um, okay. but, um, yeah, so yeah. So rock health, the rock health, the company is a nonprofit, the fund. Oh. Is a okay. Um, 
So I, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was time at the, at, at the same time that I was building Rock Health, my husband was building a company. Um, so it was very intense time for both of us. And, yeah. um, you know, I think we just realized our Silicon Valley is an amazing place to build a company. It is so inspiring. There's so many smart, creative people. I mean, it was career changing, um, but it also just wasn't the way we wanted to live our lives. I mean, we were right. working nonstop, seven days a week. I mean, Saturday and Sunday, like, like everyone, all of our friends, everyone works seven days a week, worked until, you know, through dinner, after dinner. I mean, literally, I don't know, 80, hundred hour weeks, like week after Ugh. week after week. And so, you know, we, the thing that kind of was a pivotal point for me was, uh, my dad had a heart attack mm -hmm. and this was in, um, 2012 or 2013, 2013, maybe. And, um, I didn't go home to see him because I had some meetings that at the time felt very, very important. Seemed so important. Yeah. I, now I cannot list to you or name to you what those meetings were, but I didn't right. go home to see him. And, um, you know, he fortunately survived and we recovered, went, you know, through cardiac rehab and whatnot. Um, but like when I reflected on that decision, I realized that I was making major mistakes in my life. And yeah. they say, you know, no, no one at, at their, you know, their, their last day says like, man, I wish I would have worked more. Right. Right. Um, right. You know, right. There's, there's just a, yeah. I mean, it's easy when you love what you're doing to let it take up your entire day. Um, totally. And especially in a startup, which not that it was a startup at that, by that time, but yeah. when you're running the company and everything seems so like such an emergency. I mean, like you have to be the one to take care of everything, you yeah, know, and especially when it's, you you're started literally, it. Literally starting a company is just like, you're, you're just a firefighter. There's like always something. Yeah. And, um, and there's, there's endless amounts of work because there's always more that you can do and can create. So you can right. really tied up in that. So we decided, um, you know, we, we needed to get out of there. We needed to, um, it, it's also a monoculture. Everyone's at a startup, everyone's in tech and, um, it, you know, doesn't necessarily have the diversity of thought, um, that yeah. we met and, and my husband's from the Midwest as well. And, um, you know, we both kind of have a more, we, we definitely had a more like family oriented idea of how we wanted to live our lives than what we were actually doing. And so. Yeah. <clears throat> Jeff was like, uh, he was like done with the startup world, the tech world. So he wanted to go into academia, which is a very weird direction, but yeah, he went from tech completely <laughs> to now he's sort in, I mean, I would say he's in healthcare. We always start companies together, but yeah, he's definitely in healthcare. So we started, I started rock health when he started Cloudera. And then when I started Natalist, he started related sciences, which he's working on now, but yeah. He, he, yeah, so he made the jump. So he basically, he was in tech, data science, and then he moved, he, he got a job as a professor at Mount Sinai. And someone once asked him like, well, how are you a professor if you don't have a PhD? Or how is he, someone asked the head of the department, how is he a professor if he doesn't have a PhD? And the head of the department responded, because there are no PhDs in what he does. Right, like, right. I'm like, da like right. data science on like genomic data, like didn't exist. He had the right. skill set. So, so he, he was a professor at Mount Sinai for a couple of years. So we moved to New York 
I, um, I took a different type of role at Rock Health. So replaced myself as, um, you know, their full-time kind of took more of a part-time role. I, I went to academia too. I started teaching at Columbia Business School, um, of course on digital health. And um, yeah, and so, so that, was, that was like our transition out of that. I still, you know, worked at Rock Health for several years after that, but um, yeah. What do you think digital health has done that's been transformative for healthcare? What, what are some examples that you feel like are... Well, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest um, example that's most current would be telemedicine. Yeah. So with COVID, um, you know, it's been, it's been an accelerant for digital touch points between providers and patients that has been really helpful to stop. Which 10 years ago, people were like, this is a, you cannot do this. This is unacceptable. We're not doing it. I mean, literally 10 years ago, it was there was one company, Teladoc, and now there's a thousand. Yeah. You know, te- every hospital has their own telemedicine mm-hmm. system. I mean, and Ed, yeah. that's my husband does a lot of telemedicine. Too. Yeah. No, I mean, even USC put themselves in a very good position building out their telehealth center early right. on. Um, and before yeah. COVID. Yeah. I think that, you know, COVID has been terrible for many reasons, but it, for telemedicine, um, you know, we've made progress and strides in normalizing telemedicine from right. um, patient perspective and also a provider perspective. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Getting providers comfortable with it. So yeah, it's, it's been, I think I would say telemedicine has been big. I think uh, pricing transparency has been one where, um, you know, technology is, is super helpful. So like GoodRx, which is a company. I really oh, like. I love GoodRx. <laughs> Like, yeah, of course, like, duh, like everybody should be able to shop around for the cheapest prescription. Um, right. I, yeah. So I feel like there's a lot there in, in, in that, that I would say, you know, price transparency is part of a bigger, like patient education, like giving patients the tools to empower them on their healthcare journey. Right. People don't realize that they have options, I think, for you know, where to get their health care, who to get, you know, opinions from. It's, it's really interesting um, it's to very, work through that yeah, with people. I mean, but it's not the language, the medical <clears throat> language that we use. Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Like the, the way uh, care is set up in kind of silos of specialty care versus primary care, it's, it's really hard right. to navigate. And if you imagine, like, imagine if like English is your second language, imagine if you don't have health insurance, imagine nightmare, if, you know, yeah. Yeah, you're someone living with, uh, you know, something chronic that you haven't been able to diagnose. I mean, there it, there are a lot of reasons healthcare is problematic, but it also creates major issues for people who are not, um, you know, fully insured, set up to navigate it. Yeah, exactly. Set up to navigate it well yeah. for any for any number of different reasons. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's fascinating. Yeah. As obviously everybody in. Well, Hallie knows this, but y'all might know, but uh, pretty much everybody in my family, um, with the exception of my older brother, who is the most successful of all of us. Um, but uh, the rest of us are medical. So that sounds very, very successful, but my older brother who is not medical. <laughs> right. I know. He's always like, Oh, I'm not medical. And we're like, well, you're, you're the one crushing life. So you're I know. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about going into an industry that just helps bring people joy. <laughs> right. Like that was literally our source of joy for the last like eight months. But so, but with that being said, like all of our in-laws family, so like his in-laws and, and my other brother's in-laws, like, nope, you know, 
to see these people who are like, you know, educated and have health insurance and all that, but they still have such a hard time navigating the, the, the medical system. It's kind of fascinating because I'm, you know, we're just so used to it. It's like, well, how, how do you not know you can get a second opinion? How do you not go, know you can price shop your, right. you know, CT scan or your prescription or, or whatever, but it, it's so, so, so different. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. I, yeah, I mean, and having friends, I mean, I'm, I'm not a provider, obviously, but having friends that are, I mean, how many times have I texted you about questions? I know. Uh, yeah. Able to, like quickly text a friend. I, I feel like that's an opportunity of like, just like your, like a mobile app. That's like your friend in medicine that can answer all the questions for you. Well, to me, that's <laughs> what telemedicine is because I think about it too, like in the, like say for example, pediatrics. I mean, I know that probably half of my dad and brother are both pediatricians. And like, I can tell you that half their day is probably spent with patients that have kids that are sick and the parents, which this is absolutely normal and the parents aren't really sure how to judge how sick they are you know do they need to actually be seen in the office maybe maybe not but like they probably need a good telemedicine visit to just say this is normal this is what you need to do treat with xyz at home and if you know xyz happen you know if give them the parameters and say this is when you bring them in so it's it's super interesting how different is it between first kids and second kids Oh, right. Panic, you panic all constantly about everything. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I think Tilly's been to our doctor like four times. Well, she's also a lot less sickly of a child than Evie, but still, <laughs> you know, um, Evie has all the allergies and like, all is she things, less but... sickly or is it that Evie's the first child? So I a little a combo of both. I'm, yeah. I'm sh- quite sure of that. Definitely a combo of both. I mean, we, yeah. So at what when did you decide? So, so now you're the founder and CEO of a second company, which yeah. I mean, who has founded two companies before they're even age 40, but you founded Natalist really after your personal experience with the IVF world. Yeah. Tell us about Natalist. Yeah. Well, when we, um, like when we, we moved to New York, um, we immediately wanted to start a family. I mean, that was at that point we had been together for five or six years and were married and had left San Francisco and were closer to family. We weren't with family, but closer to family and like just made room in our lives for each other and for growing a family. And so, um, you know, we got, we got started down that path and, um, you know, bought all the things 
did all the things that we were supposed to do, read all the books and just, we just weren't getting pregnant. And so we waited the required, you know, year to talk, you know, to get like medical help. And I had like, you know, I had to have some minor health issues. I mean, I'm I'm overall very healthy person, but I had some minor health issues. Um, I had some cysts that had to be removed, um, you know, like twice before. Um, and you know, but other than that, like, you know, didn't know my mom had major issues conceiving. She, um, had my sisters really young at like Mm -hmm. 18 and 20. And then she had, and you know this about me, she had, um, you know, like over a dozen miscarriages, including a stillbirth at like five or six months. I cannot imagine that. I cannot. They ended up by the time she was 27, she had, um, they decided to adopt so that my brother was adopted and Uh then, um, you know, she continued to try and then like miraculously got pregnant with me at 37, like as a surprise. You're Um, like 20 years younger than your older. So yeah. So my, the age gap between my oldest is 18 years, um, which is like pretty crazy, but I, I definitely had like Looking back, I feel like I was, and both my sisters had, had had miscarriages, but both of them, both of them conceived early. Like they were in their, you know, mid twenties. Uh-huh. Um, but then they both, they both had miscarriages. So I was expecting, you know, I was expecting like, maybe it would be difficult, but <clears throat> there was nothing, you know, and I did my normal workups and there was nothing alarming. Um, uh-huh. and so we kind of like, just, we, we did the, the treadmill of, of infertility. So you start with the meds. They clomid just you, or clomid and yeah. all, you know, they just give you the meds to help you ovulate. And then we moved on to IUI. We did IUI for like, for about a year we were doing IUI. Um, and then, you know, the granddaddy to IVF. And yeah. that was, um, you know, that was the point actually, when we decided that we wanted to some more time in, in Charleston, which is what we were going back and we started to go back and forth. Um, because like going going to a clinic, uh, like our clinic was on fifth Ave, um, and having like, you know, these invasive procedures and being a little bit out of it and like, it, it's getting it's in like, a cab. Yeah. And then like having to like go out onto fifth Avenue and like hail a cab and there's just, like, the oh. rats and yeah. And then like feeling you might fall into a sinkhole. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a very long, uh, very like terrible crappy. It still is a crappy you know, process. Yeah. And, um, but I, I, during kind of like trying, especially when we were trying naturally, I was just like, so there was such a disconnect between the products that I needed to get pregnant and Uh like the products that I used to make me feel good. So like my self-care, my beauty products and how how wonderful they are to use and how I love having them in my, you know, and they're, they're pretty and they're, they're branded and they're, you know, like targeted for you. Whereas I'm assuming you're talking about like the right lubes and all this stuff that you're like pregnancy tests and all that. And it's like (laughs) ugly and clinical. Well, no, I mean, like the moment that like the the spark of inspiration came when I like looked at my bed stand and I had this product, I'm not going to name names, but it's this, (laughs) but everyone knows if you know, you know, know. if you know, you know, it's a fertility lubricant with like this homey looking white woman holding a baby <laughs> on the front and these like 
applicators that look like little like syringes for putting lube. I mean, there's just like, which I don't even understand the applicator. Like, why do you need a syringe? Like, I'm sorry to get a little bit geographical and here, but like, (laughs) Why are you putting it up that far? Nothing, That's, nothing sets the mood like an applicator like it, right? of, of paraben filled, mind you. The product itself is like not a clean product and you're putting it in you in a syringe. A, just a giant turkey baster, basically. So yes. Um, and that was the product that I was like, wow, this can and should be done better. This is a, and I looked up the company that made it. <laughs> all white men executives, all white uh-huh. men board, really like you can just, the, these products were lacking empathy, lacking usability. There was no tie between my experience as a woman in a very life-changing part of my life, right. a very intimate part of my life. Yet like these products were very medical and dated. And so I was like, man, someone really just needs to come along and redo all of this for millennial women. We deserve better. And so I I sat on that idea for a while and I actually tried to find someone else to do it because I didn't want to run a company again. Right. I wanted to just, I like investing. I love investing. I love being cheerleaders for other founders, especially women and underrepresented minority founders. Like that is like, to me, the best job ever. And so I tried to find companies, you know, company doing this. I, you know, backed a couple of companies in the fertility space, um, including Kind Body, which is on the clinic side, which is awesome. Um, Uh And, um, and, and no one, no one would do it. (laughs) So um, I actually found like a couple. Wait, and why did that not say like, that wasn't like, oh, hey, maybe you shouldn't. You were like, well, that's dumb. No one's doing it. Well, I just think the brain works. Yeah, right. Like Ed actually introduced me to a CEO who I'll tell you after this, I don't want to call him out on this. Um, But someone who, who knew CPG, knew how to build products. And I tried to convince him to do it. He was like, Uh "Eh." he was like, I love this idea, but, uh." and I was like, you know what? I'm going to just drive whoever, like if I find a company or if I like pull together a company, I'm just going to drive this person crazy. I just need to do it. And so I just did it. And I remember telling Jeff and I was like, oh, I'm going to start this other company. He's like, oh God, like last time you started a company, last time we started companies, it was, it almost killed us. Yeah. And so we, we, and he was like, but I kind of want to start something too. And so we just basically, both of us like sat down and created, um, you know, some, some, some goals for us, um, and some, some guidelines and some boundaries, boundaries we, we promised that. And like, we've been doing, a, I'm like hundred percent. I have awesome work-life balance our team is like all moms. So we all, you know, kind of set a culture of, you know, we, we love what we do and we're super productive during the work day, but we care about our families and want to be with our families at night. Like, we're not going to do this at the expense of like missing out on our children growing up. What's what, when you say you have awesome work-life balance, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like Mm -hmm. most people don't ever say that. So what do you do to to create that? Yeah. So, well, I, I set, you know, I set boundaries on when I, like when I start and end work. So yeah, I work, I mean, technically nine to five, but I'm generally up at seven. So I'm just, it's generally seven to five. I don't mm-hmm. work nights. I don't work weekends. I don't expect anyone on the team to. Um, yeah. And it's really just about, it's, these are kind of like cultural things that compound. Like if you have a leader that is like working at all hours and, ex- and 
slacking people at all hours, emailing people at all hours. You know, everybody kind of looks at it as like, okay, gotta work. Like the CEO's working. Yeah, absolutely. We've so been talking about that at Skin Click recently. I mean, it's hard. And, and it's hard too for women too. Like for me, sometimes the best time I can work is- Yeah. If, especially like with COVID when everybody was home, my God, I'm like, I can't get anything done. Like if you're in the house, even if there's a babysitter or whatever with your kids, it's like, they know, I mean, they know they can like smell you. Even if you're dead silent, they know that you're there. <laughs> so sometimes it's easier to just get work like and rats. emails done. So they are just like rats, you know, it's seven, seven thirty. but, but I, we are Sarah and I, my partner are always very clear about like, we don't if we're working at 9 PM, that is never because we want or expect you to. It's because yeah. simply because like, that's when I could get to that's this email, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's interesting. And that definitely has happened more with COVID just like more, we, we offered, you know, flexible, like do what you do, what you can, when you can, we have very generous yeah. hours you know, policy. So, you know, if you need to take just like a mental health week, take a mental health week. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the, this is a whole other conversation, but like working women have been incredibly disadvantaged in COVID. And there's a lot of research out there that is very harrowing and is, is pointing to us as women, as working women losing years, if not decades of progress. Yeah. Um, because most yeah. women aren't in work environments like you and I, and our the women are, uh, have seen record unemployment this year. Yeah. Um, and being hit hardest are women of color, working women, mothers, um, working women, sorry, working mothers. And, um, yeah, so it'll be, you know, it, it's going to take us a while to kind of make up, um, the losses that we've had this year, but yeah, it sucks for a lot of reasons, but it does. It, it definitely does. <laughs> and I, you know, it's, it's a hard balance in, in that conversation of, cause I want to talk about your thesis for your master's in public yeah. health too, but it, it is a hard balance. I mean, we know that all these numbers are up, you know, it's like, there's no good solution. I mean, right now until not, we get a vaccine. Like, something I've been thinking a lot about is how it's become, it has accelerated this already vicious cycle. So what I'm seeing mm -hmm. with my, a lot of my friends is that their husbands make more money than them. This is because women only make what 83 cents on the dollar on the dollar. Yeah. Even worse for women of color. Um, but so women are already paid less. So men are making more. So when a couple sits down to the side, look, school is closed. Someone's got to watch the kids. Um, you know, we need someone to pick up the extra work at home. It's going to be the person who makes less money. That yeah. is, that is just the default. And so right. we're seeing women who have no choice because they need, the family needs more money. And if the husband's job is more lucrative, then that's the job. Her job is the one that's like on the cutting block. And so we're just seeing the cycle. So then women are dropping out. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's awful, but it's, it, this has been, we have pre-existing inequalities that have made COVID that much worse. And yeah, I mean, that's my, my thesis is all about one of the most vulnerable populations during COVID, which is battered women. Yeah. What's, what is your thesis? Like yeah. your talk about that. So yeah, the, the only thing like, standing between me and like my MPH is this, this paper that I've been working on. Um, so oh, that's it. I mean, you're not, not that that's it, yeah, but yeah, I get my diploma in December once I 
present, turn the, your paper in, submit it and present it. So this is my first time writing an academic paper. This is all, you know, new to me, but essentially, so it's a, it's a literature review, but I, I like literature is defined as both like existing research, but also looking at uh, over a hundred news reports across the U S. So I created mm -hmm. this database of news reports uh, that include data points from local police um, departments, local courts, and local nonprofit shelters and whatnot. And so I now have this database of like in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, the police department saw this um, this amount of increase in domestic violence 911 calls from this yeah. state to this state compared to this state. Um, so there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of data. No one's aggregating this at a national level. So I kind of, you know, did that to kind of figure out what we're seeing. And it's not apples to apples because every, um, you know, every city reports in different ways. So some of them mm -hmm. reported homicides, some of them reported police calls, some of them reported like how many of the shelter beds are being used and the time periods are also different. So um, generally the articles are a reporter calling up like a police station seeing like uh -huh. the official notes. So the dates are all different too. Some of them are like, the month of February, some of them are, are May to June, some, you know, so, so I have this database, this open source, like I'm sharing with anyone who could use it, but it helped kind of create the arc of my piece, which is how 2020, several factors of 2020, including a pandemic, including civil unrest, um, mm. have, including isolation, have compounded all of the risk factors for domestic violence. So I don't yeah. say domestic violence has increased, which I'm very confident it has, but from an academic standpoint, um, yeah. all I can say is- It's hard to quantify that, right? Reports of domestic violence has increased. Um, and and why? I mean, there, there are a lot of, you know, it's, it's a complex problem, but, um, you know, one, we saw like isolation. I mean, isolation is an, a, a tactic- Oh God, yes. Use to help cut you off from people who can help you. So all of a sudden, the we're saying like, stay safe, stay home, but actually home is the most dangerous place you can be if you're someone who's- if You're in that situation. Yeah. yeah. And then just like the added financial stress, um, unemployment is related, already unemployment is related to, at, it, it is a factor for um, domestic- Domestic abuse. violence, more yeah. so than, Even more so than race, even more so than- hmm economic status is unemployment. Because just the sheer stress, mm -hmm. I mean, the sheer stress of it all of a sudden, you know, losing your job is. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, stress is a factor. I mean, there, there are actually like hormonal, like the testosterone cortisol ratio that actually is impacted. So there's like a biological mechanism that happens with this, like acute stress from right. being fearful of catching the, <laughs> you know, this like crazy pandemic being involved in that, the, the civil unrest. So the other thing that's been really interesting is that not only are we seeing more reports of domestic violence, but more severe reports. So more yeah. cases that include, um, you know, guns. And so if you look yeah. at actually what happened was there were 3 million more guns sold from March to July, 2020 than, wow. than expected, um, than like what would have ordinarily been purchased in that time and a spike right after a lot of these protests that the George Floyd stuff. Yeah. So <clears throat> that has made, you know, already dangerous situations of a, a gun in the house of someone with known domestic abuse increases the likelihood of death for the woman 20 fold. 
So it should, which should be illegal. I mean, that's such a bigger conversation too. It's like, that should be illegal, but here we are. It should be, but we have the boyfriend loophole. We have like the gun show loophole. Like, yeah, I mean, these are our regulations around gun control. And there's, there's actually a, there's a researcher at MUSC that does this and you should bring her on the podcast. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's the policies around gun ownership are state by state and they're not ironclad. Um, But yeah, yeah, someone who has a history of domestic abuse shouldn't be able to have a gun because we know that that means for the woman, higher chance of someone dying. Yeah, it's yeah. So what is your paper? Are you just covering like what this, what it's looked like statistically or you, I mean, I'm covering, so I'm I'm basically going through the, the magnitude of the problem using all these news reports to kind of illustrate the magnitude of the problem and then focusing on those five risk factors. So alcohol, alcohol use is the other one. I don't think we talked about that, but alcohol use has gone up. Um, so alcohol, um, unemployment, financial stress, regular stress, um, isolation and then guns. So those are kind of like the risk factors. I yeah. to. And then, you know, I am also, you know, focusing on the other piece of it, which is access to help has gone down. So, right. so many like people that are mandatory reporters, teachers, things are closed. Yeah. Medical providers. Yeah. Right. They're not getting, so, so people who are survivors of domestic abuse aren't getting that typical, um, screen that they would have gotten before. Plus right. women, um, particularly black women who are more likely to be arrested and killed by the police for calling and reporting abuse done to them. Um, that has obviously exacerbated in 2020, just a, a distrust of the police, rightfully so. Um, right. And so there's just a lot of barriers, undocumented women, they're less likely to call for help because they'll you know, have concerns around um, you know, being now deported, being, yeah. being deported and, um, yeah. mistreated. So, you know, I talk about the risk factors and then I go and talk about, um, kind of these barriers that have, have made it a lot harder for women to get help. And then kind of some recommendations for remedying this problem. So I'm, I'm submitting, this is my first paper I've ever written and I'm submitting it to, uh, the journal of public health. So fingers crossed you'll get to read it. Um, yeah, I hope it gets published since I do too. Yeah. So you, and you've always been, I mean, this is kind of t- going back, but you, I mean, you've always been, your focus has always been women and women's health and such a champion of that. And yeah, one thing I, I didn't ask when we were talking about Natalist and that the company with the all, you know, white males on their, you know, board and that yes. who owns them. So t- I want you to talk about manals and yeah. what you're doing to, to help <laughs> mitigate manals. So first of all, what yeah. is a mantle? So a mantle is a all male panel at a conference. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it's something that, uh, I mean, I've gone to thousands of conferences in my, my career and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's one of those problems that shouldn't exist. There are women role models in healthcare. Uh, women make Tons. 85% of the healthcare decisions. Women are now, uh, there are more women in med school now than men. Um, yet women are, you know, underrepresented in a lot of places of leadership and on the, you know, on these stages at these prestigious healthcare conferences. So maybe like maybe eight or so years ago, um, I, we, we started doing these reports on the state of like women in healthcare, women working in healthcare. And so we would look at all the data. We looked at how many of the fortune 500 companies 
that are healthcare have like a woman executive, a woman CEO, uh-huh. a woman, you know, board member and very few. I think there was like one, there was one woman CEO of a fortune 500 healthcare company and then she got fired. So then there was zero. Um, but women were like more likely to be in roles like, you know, head of like chief nursing officer or head of HR, not the roles that had to do with the money and the strategy. Um, right. We looked at that. Right. We looked at the top, the CEOs of like the top hospitals. We looked at um, startups. So we kind of just like compiled this data because it was like so obvious. Um, and then we included like the top prestigious conferences and just looked at like who's on the stages here. Um, and just kind of like naming and, and shaming and, um, we got a lot <laughs> name, and of, name and shame, uh, you know, we got a lot of attention. We got a lot of flack for it. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely like a bold way to expose a problem, but, uh, it was very effective. And any kind of flack, what, what were they like, what, what kind of flack oh, can you get for that? I'll just send you some of the things, um, that like, you know, we should be more polite. We should just like let the conference that organizers know that we should give them names. We should do the work for them and help them. Um, oh or like women don't want to go. And there are, I mean, there, there's classic. I mean, some like, you know, sometimes it's just hard. It's harder for women to get to conferences. We are more likely to be responsible for our children. So for, right. for working mothers, like there is, there is a legit reason. I do hope that now that virtual conferences are more the norm, that we can see even more, you know, diversity um, for virtual conferences. But like a lot of times these conferences don't offer childcare. They don't, you know, fly you out. Like it's just, you know, it is right. hard for women to get there. But the, the, the real reason is that you can't manage what you don't measure. And these conference organizers don't care. They just, right. you know, they put all their friends up there and they put, you know, a lot of white men up there. So that's just yeah. like, we've been just calling these conferences out for a, a long time. The most recent, I still do it. The most recent was a UCSF conference that um, I called out that that went like slightly viral on Twitter. Um, I love it. Yeah, I was gonna say, if you want to see Hallie calling them out, go, you gotta follow her on Twitter. Go, I love yeah, it. Yeah, go to Twitter, I, I call them out. Um, you know, that one, I think I'm just like, exa- I think I literally said like, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> How can you let this happen? I mean, it's just like not even it, it I'm tired now of it. It's just like right. it's it's crazy. We even at one point back um I don't, I don't remember I don't remember what politician said they had binders full of women. I forget. Mitt Romney. It was, it Mitt, was Romney. Mitt Romney. Okay. Remember when that was what was scandalous oh. in politics? Is I'm Mitt gonna... Romney saying binders full of women? Where have we gone? Got where have the glory days of binders gone? I know, right? I I miss that. Um, But but we use that playfully to create what we call a binder full of binders full of women. So we literally created a binder full of speaker women. Women speakers is a database that's open source. It's still out there. We're like, look, like if the problem is like you don't know these women, here you go. Here's a list. Like these women all want binder. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think representation is really important and it's not just gender, it's race as well. It's age. It's, there are a lot of things, um, that conference organizers just need to be really thoughtful about because, um, people in the audience need to see, you know, they need to see people that look like them, um, especially, you know, underrepresented healthcare workers, um, seeing, you know, role models that look like you is really important. 
Um, but also like we can't be in an echo chamber of old white men. We have to yeah. listen to the voices. A healthcare, uh, healthcare is run by a group of people that are not completely representative of who they serve. And that is a, a misfortune for the healthcare industry. And so until we see more women, um, you know, in those roles, we need to make sure we're giving them the megaphone so that their voices can get out there. That is such a good and incredible way to summarize is that we don't represent the people who we serve. We don't. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's difficult and it requires work on our end. You know, we see that um, this week with the death of that <clears throat> African-American uh, pediatric resident um, woman, you know, died after childbirth. And we can say all day long, hey, African-American women are more likely to die after giving birth in the United States. But until we as a system you know, acknowledge that, that there's something going on. Um, it's, it's not going to change. I think that's the perfect example of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Everybody can go see Hallie on Twitter. Where are you at Hallie Teco? Yeah. And then natalist.com or .co? Yeah. Check out natalist. I think we have a dabble co coupon code we did is it still active i was yeah. gonna say that okay i'll have i'll look it up before this episode airs and i'll post it if you are um, trying or if you are pregnant we have a number of products our team is mom led mom funded yeah. mom owned we've been there i'm not the only one on the team with us with a story we all kind of have unique journeys and um are building this company to support other women who are trying to, you know, get pregnant healthfully and have a healthy baby. So, and not have it be such an ugly clinical shameful. I love the community that you guys are creating where you're celebrating women who are pregnant and who, who are successful. And then, but then you're also acknowledging women who are having a hard time and creating really a community where it's not shameful, you know, no shame and no stigma. We've, yeah, definitely. I mean, and we're not afraid, you know, to talk about those things. Right. No, it's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. We love Dabble Co. Thank you. Thanks for so doing it. You, Claire. <laughs> love you. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.